0: And then a 45, 50-minute sermon. Hopefully not. Uh turning your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. And we are going to read today the account of the conversion of one Saul of Tarsus. This story is so important in world history, in church history, that it actually appears three times in the book of Acts. It's the only story that you're going to see repeated three times in the book of Acts. Obviously, you have it kind of as the story unfolds here in Acts chapter 9. You're also going to see Paul recount his conversion in Acts chapter 22 in his sixth sermon after he's arrested at Jerusalem. And he's, he's preaching to the crowds who, who are wanting his head. And, and he tells them the story of his conversion. He tells the story again uh, at Caesarea to King Agrippa. Uh, this time in a, another hostile audience and King Agrippa, you know, throws his hands up and says, you know, what, what are you doing here? And Paul insists at that point that he appealed to Caesar. But this story is so central to the history of the church that it is in the book of acts three times. And as we read, uh, acts chapter nine, one through 19, I want you to take it in. And, and I want you to, take in the beauty of the story and I want you as we read it to marvel at the overwhelming grace of God, both to Paul individually and to the broader church at that time and to church history, all of us, everyone sitting in this room, what this story means and what it represents. Okay, because You could preach 10, 15 different sermons out of this text. I've merely done one path on this. Okay. So as we read it, take it in. And in honor of the reading of God's word and as a public testimony to the resurrection of Christ, I ask that you stand as we read Acts chapter 9 through the first half of verse 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest And asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple. And entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. This morning, we're going to discuss three things in relation to this account. One, we'll discuss Saul's conversion itself. Two, we'll discuss how Saul's conversion typifies the larger narrative of redemption history. And three, we will discuss Ananias' response to God's call. Saul's conversion. There are various elements in the conversion of Saul, many of which are normative to the conversion of all of God's saints and several of which are unique to this Saul of Tarsus. So first, I want to go over those things and highlight for us those things that are not normative, that are unique to Saul and the calling God had for him. Number one is that there's no preacher. Paul would later write, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him and who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So Paul here is on this road. He is on the road to persecute the church. And there's no Philip going to the eunuch. To explain a passage of scripture, there's no missionary there to walk him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is on the road to to persecute the church. And then two, the second non-normative thing, there is a literal personal encounter with Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which every saint of God has an encounter with Jesus Christ upon the moment of our salvation. But with Paul, it's different here. But the Lord appears to him or the voice comes to him. There's a great light. The glory of God shines about them and he hears the voice of Christ. Now, at the end of that section of Romans that we just read, you read this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. So there is a sense in which this encounter with Jesus is the actual greatest fulfillment of that of that that text in Romans chapter 10, the very words of Christ are coming to Saul of Tarsus from the words of Jesus himself. Now, if this had happened to me and maybe some of you, I might be a little conceited about it. You might kind of hold up this experience. It's kind of a dangerous experience to get because it endows you with, a certain authority when you tell the story, doesn't it? But that's not how Paul uses it. You know, when he is to a hostile audience, he will recount the story. When he is preaching to the crowds at the temple, when they, when they want to arrest him, he's already arrested. When they want to persecute him, he tells the story. When he's being frog-marshed in front of King Agrippa, he will tell the story. But, you know, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, the way he words it is in the context of proving up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says this last of all, as to one, what untimely born, he appeared also to me for I am the what the least of the apostles. He says, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So when Paul recounts the story to the church, he does so in an act of humility, displaying that God intercepts him. Jesus Christ intercepts him as he's on his way to persecute the church of God. And so Paul doesn't lord this experience over people. Instead, he uses it to highlight the ultimate sovereign grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One other non-normative thing about this conversion is that in this moment, Paul is given a particular mission. Once he gets to the house of Judas and Ananias comes in, you can can see that he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Now, in our text in chapter 9, that statement is given by our Lord to Ananias, right? But when Paul would recount the story later in Acts 26... He tells us that Jesus himself also told him this, that he had this mission to be the apostle, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. So he gets a direct mission in that moment, which is a foreshadowing of the entire book of Acts, isn't it? That this is the mission of this Saul of Tarsus who had become Paul. For what does he do on every missionary journey that he goes on? He goes to the synagogues first, witnessing to the children of Israel. They kick him out. Then he goes to the Gentiles and they get a lot of converts. And then what happens? He's held before King Agrippa. And ultimately, at the end of the book, he is awaiting trial before Caesar. And lastly, the non-normative thing we see is the associated miracles with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And I want to say here that the conversion of every soul, the conversion of every one of you, the conversion of Jen and Jossi who were baptized this morning, every conversion is a miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit. Every one of them. But this particular conversion is associated with other miracles besides the audible voice of Christ and that light that shone uh, on the people that Saul was with and on Saul. And as we've noted before, the miracles in the book of Acts are there for two reasons. One is to verify the messianic claims of Jesus Christ. And two is to validate apostolic authority. And so the voice of God verifies the messianic claims of Christ. Jesus, the voice of Christ to Saul of Tarsus, why do you persecute me? And note there, too, and I don't don't want to lose this point. Who is Saul persecuting? He's persecuting the church. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. When the world or anyone persecutes you individually as a child of God or the corporate church or Sylvania church, they are persecuting Jesus Christ and praise God. That's how he considers it. And Christ is going to protect his church and he's going to fulfill his mission. And so the voice of God appearing, the voice of Christ appearing to Saul there, being heard by Saul there, verifies Christ's messianic claims. And then incorporating Ananias in the the blindness, the scales falling from the eyes, and the vision given to Ananias, those things will ultimately validate the the apostolic authority of who will become the Apostle Paul. But what's normative? I mean, that's interesting. And if you read that, you can basket it, and then you'll 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 just kind of wonder well how what does that mean for me which is not how you should read the bible but i but i know that's how we often read the bible so i want to show you some things that are normative and i want to praise god for each one of these things number 1 is that god initiates this conversion it, i don't know if this is still so but when, in the 1990s there was a movement called the seeker sensitive church movement i don't know if that's still a thing but I'm here to tell you on the authority of Scripture that we should be sensitive to the seeker. But the seeker is not the sinner Saul of Tarsus. The seeker is our Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The seeker is the Holy Spirit of God who is going to wrest every, every Christian from the control of the wicked one and bring all the children of God to glory. For we know that if you are born again, you are born not of blood. Nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Saul of Tarsus discovered in this moment that it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. So one, it's normative that God initiates this conversion, that he seeks out the one whom he will save. And two, we see a demonstration of God's sovereign grace because God always gets his man. And salvation for the sheep of God is a certainty. Jesus said, all the Father will give me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I give them eternal life, he said, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. We serve a sovereign king. We serve the only sovereign king. And I don't care what you're the leader of. There's a story in Daniel we read about King Darius, who was the king of Babylon. Powerful man, most powerful man on earth. And Darius had a number of leaders under him, 120 of what they called satraps. And Daniel was the chief among these. And in fact, Darius loved Daniel so much, he wanted to put Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom. And as you can imagine, this provoked a great amount of jealousy for the non-Hebrews who were satraps. And they conspired together about how they could entrap Daniel. They wanted to kill him. And so... They engage in flattery to the king. And they encourage him to enact a law. And that law said that for su- such amount of time, you can't petition any God or any man for anything except for King Darius. As they knew that Daniel was faithful. And Darius is so flattered. He signs the edict into law. Daniel knows he signs it into law. And Daniel opens up that window, faces Jerusalem and prays and he gets caught and he's arrested. And these conspirators, they go to the king and they say, didn't you make this law? And he says, yes. Isn't it true that in Babylon, when you write a law like this and you sign it, that it's irrevocable? He says, yes. And then they proceed to condemn Daniel right in front of him. the king's heart breaks. He's stuck. We read, then the king, when he'd heard these words, was much distressed and he set his mind to deliver Daniel and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. But he couldn't do anything. He was a king who could not deliver. And ultimately, he throws his hands up and says, may your God whom you serve continually deliver. Deliver you. We serve a sovereign king who, when he sets to deliver someone, he delivers them. As we noted last week, redemption is a three-legged stool of bondage, ransom, and deliverance. You are in bondage to sin and death. Jesus Christ paid the perfect ransom on the cross. And all of his saints are delivered from their sins. And Paul was delivered. And he was delivered to something. Just as the children of Israel were delivered to the promised land, when you are saved, you are delivered to something for good works in Jesus Christ to bring glory to his name. In verse 15, we can see that the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Now, this word instrument Paul would later use in Romans chapter nine you'll recognize it as the word vessel in most translations. For Paul would write, you will say to me then, why why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul knows that he was a vessel or an instrument of wrath intent upon bringing wrath to God's people. And so it is no wonder that he would write a text like that in Romans chapter 9, because he knows that he was on a path to death and destruction. And God grabbed him and Christ took him. And Christ molded him into a vessel of mercy fit for glory. And so are you. If you are a child of God this morning, God has made you a vessel of mercy Fit for glory. And let me tell you something. You need to act like it. And I don't just mean we need to be better. I mean that we need to rejoice that Christ is going to use us to bring glory to his name. And we need to be encouraged by that. Now, how else is it normative? I mean, we could. We're not going to do it. But we because we've got discover Sylvania. But I could go through just a laundry list. I mean, the life of Saul is fundamentally changed after his conversion. Your life better have been fundamentally changed after your conversion. There is total surrender by the Saul of Tarsus. Let me tell you something. Saul of Tarsus, later Paul, he believed in lordship salvation. He opens with, who are you, Lord? And he immediately submitted his life to Christ. There was none of this carnal Christian business with the apostle Paul. He wouldn't stand for it. If you are changed, if you are a child of God and you have been made something new, you will be something new. You will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he totally surrendered. Again, he's ready to serve. If you're a child of God, once you've been converted, you should be looking for ways to serve in Christ's church. And let me tell you something. I know there's seasons. I know that there's seasons. I know there's seasons we have where where you need to serve is your home. And that's that's where you need to be. There are seasons you have, you may have a sick loved one, and you may be tending to an ill parent. That's your ministry. But let me tell you something. You need to be all in and serving Christ through his church. All right, that season isn't going to last a lifetime. We need to all be looking for opportunities to serve Christ in his church to bring him glory. And again, you see that this Saul of Tarsus, when he's converted, There is immediate obedience, immediate obedience. The voice of Christ tells him to rise and go, and he gets up and goes. He follows Christ in baptism once the scales have fallen from his eyes, and he fulfills his call. He fulfills his call to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to Israel and to kings. So with the conversion of Saul, we see some things that are not normative. We see some things that are normative, but I also want to note this, that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, like every conversion, is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, there's a sense in which that's true for all of us, that we have all gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. The spirit of God has vivified you. He has made you alive. He has given you a new heart and a new spirit. But if go back to verse four of of, uh, Acts chapter nine, and you'll see that there is almost this ritual death to life that's seen in the story. If you can create the image in your mind's eye, look at verse four. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise. Okay. Saul of Tarsus has fallen at the voice of Christ. The voice of Christ tells him to rise and he gets up. Do you see that in the story here, there is a picture that's being painted of someone who has died and someone who has risen again. That is seen again when just go down a few other verses, go down to verse nine. Saul of Tarsus is entombed in darkness for 3 days. And for 3 days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is a picture of the burial of Christ. Christ is in darkness. I'm sure he's not eating when he's in the tomb. Okay. And that's where Saul is. And then he is resurrected out of that by being given sight. When Jesus is resurrected, Does everybody believe him? Does everybody believe that that's happened? No. You do. Mike Anderson believes that Jesus Christ is resurrected. I mean, in the Mike, that wasn't a call out for everybody to agree in the resurrection of Christ. We agree that Christ is resurrected. But you know that in that moment, the disciples didn't. I mean, they were very skeptical, even though Jesus had told them on three occasions that he must be killed and that he would be raised again in accordance with the scriptures. They didn't want to believe it. And when Saul is converted from death to life, Ananias doesn't want to believe it. And if you skip down to verse 26, Saul goes to Jerusalem. When we come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So just like at the after the resurrection of Jesus, it it takes a while for everyone to really believe that he is resurrected. It takes a while for the church to believe for the disciples to believe that this Saul of Tarsus has been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Also, he's uh, there's a sense in which the, the death and resurrection of Christ is pictured in Saul's baptism. You know, I, I love the language of it. I love the word play here of he rose and was baptized. OK, there is a death and a resurrection that happens in baptism, as Paul would point out to the church at Rome. And there was also the call that he must suffer for the sake of Christ. And and that's not just him. We are all called to suffer for the sake of Christ. And we are to bless those who persecute us and pray for those who curse us. Right. In fact, Jesus said we are to take up our cross and follow him. Later, Paul would write to the church at Philippi, for it has been granted unto you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Two, how Saul's conversion typifies the larger narrative of redemption history. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want you to catch it. I want you to be excited about it. I just want you to see it. The church is going out and the persecution is following the church. The persecution's going out too. Just like the church would happen in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the persecution is going to happen that way as well. But I want you to see, I mean, this is just stunning to me. Go to verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. There's a scene taking place where there are three men. Judas, Ananias, and Saul. Now, if I asked you to do a little word association with those three names, and I asked it of you at this moment where we are in Acts, early 30s A.D., Saul is persecuting the church. You know who Judas was. I mean, this is not that Judas. But you know the name Judas, Judas the betrayer of Christ, you would know the name Ananias. The name of Ananias would be infamous at this point. Okay? Ananias who is killed in church for lying to God. And, cast, and death casts fear upon the whole congregation, we read in Acts. And if I asked you, what, what does the name Saul mean to you? You would say that's a, that's a wicked king who persecuted the Lord's anointed one. Don't, don't miss that and there's there's a sermon here of judas of judas 's house and ananias hands and and saul 's head that just preaches out of this story, but there's also a sense in which the Saul of Tarsus is the greater Saul in redemptive history, and you can see it just by comparing the lives of the two men. King Saul was anointed he was Samuel, the prophet Samuel brings a flask of oil and anoints the head of Saul and says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince of his people, Israel? Well, Saul of Tarsus is anointed as well by the laying on of hands of Ananias, by being baptized. There's an anointing that takes place with this Saul of Tarsus. But the lives of the two men move in drastically opposite directions after that, don't they? For God's Spirit departs from King Saul. But Saul of Tarsus, the Spirit fills him, empowering him for his mission. And there's an inextricable link in the New Testament between breathing and the Spirit. Do you know that? At the beginning of this text, what is Saul of Tarsus doing? He is. He is breathing threats and murder that that word means to inhale. He is as though he is taking in murder and slaughter, and that is how he is going to live his life. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples and he said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, he exhaled on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so Saul of Tarsus has gone from breathing in threats and murder to being filled with the spirit of life. And whereas King Saul would destroy the nations, go devote to destruction, the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Saul of Tarsus would be called to conquer the nations, not by the sword, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a great picture of redemption history here by comparing these two men. Three, I want us to look at Ananias' response to God's call. Put yourself in the position of the early church, okay? Okay. You've been persecuted in Jerusalem. Peter and John, they keep getting arrested, all right? They've driven you out. Stephen has been martyred. It's been overseen by this young Pharisee named Saul. And people in that scene are kind of making an unholy sacrifice, laying their cloaks at the feet of that man. And now what has he done? And this is unique in Acts. Yes, there are people who go around kind of harassing the Apostle Paul later, but nobody through the rest of Acts is just like going out to arrest him like, like this. There's nothing else like this in Acts that that mimics what Saul was doing here. Nothing to that degree. And so who is this man? He is going around trying to arrest people and frog march them back to Jerusalem. That's what he's trying to do. It'd be terrifying. I mean, when you convert to Christ at this time, I mean, there's a sense in which you're severing ties to your community. It's frightening. And now he's going to try to arrest people. And so what would your prayer request be? If we were praying, if we were praying in in the early church and we were gathered together on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, and we knew that this, this terrorizer of Christians was going about trying to arrest people and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, both men and women, You'd probably pray for his conversion, wouldn't you? And God overwhelmingly and decisively answers that prayer request. I mean, he answers it. And he tells Ananias that he's answered it. And Ananias says, Lord, I've, I've heard a lot about this guy. Um, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, that is a very respectful response. Right. I mean, it, it, in other words, he, he doesn't just say there's no way. OK. Cautious optimism. There's cautious optimism there. All right. And Jesus is very tender, isn't he? In his response to him. In other words, this is not, you know, where were you when I formed the world response. OK, this this response from Jesus to Ananias, I think, is a, is a great kindness to him. Where he says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, there may be a sense in which Ananias gets a little schadenfreude right there at that last sentence. Okay, I hope that he didn't. Okay, But it is a beautiful kindness when God reveals his plan to his people because he does not have to do that. I mean, he could just demand that you trust him. But Ananias does trust him. What happens when Ananias goes to this man's house and he sees Saul praying? What does he do? He immediately goes over there. Now, what does he know about Saul? That he is binding men and women to bring them back to Jerusalem, that he's trying to arrest them, okay? yes, he has the word of God. We have the word of God. I submit to you that Ananias trusts God. Christ's word far more than perhaps many of us do. Okay. And he goes right up to this terrorist who's praying. And he lays his hands on him. And his first words, he hasn't heard from him yet. Ananias speaks first. It's brother Saul. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a statement of faith by this man? Last week, we talked about what it takes to be ready for God's call in your life. And we talked about how one, you have to be reading and in God's word two you have to be uh, uh, sensitive to the Holy Spirit's prodding. And we need to be ready for joyful boldness at the calling of God. And Ananias here is ready to be joyfully bold because it is an act of boldness to walk into this room. And walk up to this violent man and lay your hands on him and just tenderly say, Brother Saul. And don't miss the imagery of laying hands here. Laying on of hands is also a euphemism in Acts of arresting people. So when the apostles are arrested earlier in Acts, you'll, you'll read the, high, the, high, the chief priests and the scribes uh, sent men out to, to arrest them. And in, in a literal translation, it would be lay hands on them. Okay. Later, in Acts chapter 12, you'll read that Herod Agrippa sought to lay, quote, violent hands on the apostles, on James and John and the other disciples, ultimately kills James. But here it is the tender hands of a saint of God coming upon the now converted head of brother Saul. So here's the point, point. and this is what I want you to get out of Ananias and because you, you could preach this a thousand different ways, right? You could preach this just as a conversion story. You could preach this as what does Ananias do? I really think there's a great sermon there on Judas's house, Ananias' hands, and Saul's head. But I just couldn't do it. Here's, here's what I want to leave you with, okay? Sometimes we are so steeled up and so tensed up to be ready for the persecution, Okay? Sometimes we're so ready for the other shoe to drop, ready to lean on God for that. That we're unprepared for a glorious and decisive and overwhelming answer to prayer and blessing in our lives individually and in your family and in this church. Do you believe that God has overwhelmingly blessed us? I was thinking about it this week. Do you know how many I asked? We had 204 people at Wednesday night prayer meeting, sign up for the meal. Okay. 204 people. I texted Katrina this week. I said, what's the record for the number of people that we've had at the Wednesday night meal? She said 204 last week in this. And listen, this is not, I'm not the numbers guy. I'm not like the churches. We're being blessed. If we have more people, that's not the point of this. Okay. Don't, I'm not health and wealth guy. Okay. That's the caveat, but just hear me. Over the past four months, how blessed have we been? And I feel like a lot of times we as a congregation have been. Shane McGuire has been ready for the other shoe to drop. But sometimes God's just going to overwhelmingly bless you. Sometimes God sees his people and he sees that his sheep are in need. And it turns out that he loves his sheep and that he doesn't think of sheep as stupid. He thinks of them as helpless and valuable and he's here to protect them, and he's here to hold them, and he's here to tend to them because he is the good shepherd. You with me? Four months ago, we weren't praying for record numbers of people on Wednesday night meal. Were we? Four months ago, we had you know, 320-something people, 330 people at a Sunday service. We had 371 people in here last week. I have been praying for the other shoe not to drop. And I'm telling you, Shane McGuire at times over the past four months has missed the overwhelming blessing of God in this body. And I just want to encourage you this morning to be open to the idea that God loves us so much that he answers our prayers and he goes beyond the answer to our prayers and he loves us with abundance. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful story of your majestic grace that we see in the conversion of this Saul of Tarsus. Father, at a time when the the church would be in trepidation and fear, you you blessed them by not just taking out this wicked man, but by converting him, by bringing him from death to life. We marvel at that expression of love, not, not only to Saul of Tarsus, but to the broader church. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving your people. Thank you for tenderly caring for us. Cause us to receive this word, this word of encouragement from the early church and to take it with us in confidence in you in our daily walk. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.